Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. I'm really excited to be here today and continue the impact. Brilliant. So, yeah, I thought it'd be a great point to just hear a bit about your background and where you grew up and what part of the country you're from and what kind of drove you to studying what you studied at university, a little bit about where you came from. Yeah, sure. So I was born and brought up in in the city of Birmingham in a place called Alamark. And it falls within the constituency called Hodge Hill, which is in East Birmingham. For many, many years now, it's been considered to be one of the, unfortunately, actually considered to be one of the most disadvantaged constituencies in the country. Actually, at the time of the referendum to leave the EU, it was considered to be the most disadvantaged constituency and Richmond in London was considered to be the most affluent constituency so growing up there wasn't the easiest. I went to a state school, kind of non-selective state school and from there I went to kind of sixth form and then worked hard to get into university and generally my background in terms of education wise there's been quite limited support available for kind of the community where I've been born and brought up, but it's been an eventful journey, let's say, from Birmingham to where I am now. Yeah, it definitely has been. You were at university, you studied science, if I'm not wrong in hazarding a guess, university? Yeah, so at university I studied human sciences, which yeah. What is that actually? For an ignorant man like myself, it'd be really helpful to know. I don't think you're ignorant. I mean, you studied PPE, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but human sciences, it's quite a broad kind of holistic, similar to PPE, kind of takes a holistic approach to studying humans. So we study the biological and evolutionary sciences right the way up to demography, population science, to kind of social anthropology, to migration studies and sociology. So it's basically taking a very holistic approach to studying humans and human behaviour. Fascinating. And you were at university 2011 to 14 and you went to Stanford as well. This is a very random question, but do you know Hans MacDonald? No, definitely don't know Hans MacDonald. 
Right. Okay. Interesting. How did you find the whole Stanford experience? So like for people who don't know, Oxford students get the chance to study for a term at Stanford in a kind of exchange program. And you were part of that, right? I was, to be honest, my background cannot be quite eliminated from the whole experience of university. And I say that because when you come from a background where there was a lack of support or understanding of why a young girl like myself wants to go to university and not get married, for instance, and kind of go against cultural norms and also go against teacher expectations. In my recent Huffington Post op-ed, I talked about how I was told by my sixth form careers advisor that I would never get into university. I would get five rejections from UCAS applications. And I went on to study at, at Magdalen College, Oxford. And so when Stanford came along, I mean, Oxford alone is kind of a line which in the wardrobe experience where you kind of walk into the wardrobe and there's a whole new world behind this wardrobe. And Stanford was kind of walking from that wardrobe to another wardrobe and into another world. And for someone who's kind of born and brought up in kind of East Birmingham, it was a very overwhelming experience, but nonetheless exciting. And it helped me grow a lot. It helped me make friends on the international scale. And I really, really enjoyed it. It really enriched my experience at university, but also perhaps for the first time in my life, I was, if I can say, I was kind of told that I was someone of calibre and I was good enough. Whereas when you come from a background where that's not what you're told and that's not the norm to be encouraged and told you have potential, it was quite a big distinction from my experience. In that sense, it was very overwhelming. It was quite new. But I started to appreciate the world that I was stepping into in the sense that I was at these universities and I was being told that I had potential. And I think that meant a lot to me. That gave me self-confidence. It made me believe in myself, especially since when I came to apply to Stanford, I knew that there was only six students from that cohort who were going to be able to go to Stanford. And I just put my application in and I pondered on it for a long time. And I thought, mm, I don't think I'm going to apply. I'm not going to get a chance. Everyone's really good. Everyone here is from private schools and they've had, they've been basically primed to get into Oxford since the day they were born. And I have no chance of getting in. And then I just decided, OK, well, just put it in. At least you know that you've done your best. And then I got the interview and I had no idea that I was going to get accepted it did come as a big surprise to me, to be honest, but an experience that I loved nonetheless. Sorry, I thought that was a very long-winded way of answering the question. Yeah, no, it was really fascinating to hear. I'm sure that there are many people who are in a similar position where it's not at all certain that they'll ever get to a prestigious university like you did from a Muslim background. So I think it's really interesting to hear that experience. Sorry, what did you get on to do straight after university? How did someone like yourself with a good degree then think about, okay, what are the kind of my next steps in terms of my career? Did you even think about having a career at this point? Yeah, I think having a career was something that I was motivated to have when I was quite young. I always knew I was going to be a professional wanted to go on to make a difference in the world. I didn't know what it exactly was. And to be very frank, sometimes I still ponder on that question, what difference do I want to make in the world? And I think a lot of people still do think about that. 
But when I finished my degree, my undergraduate, I went on to do my master's in migration diaspora studies at SOAS University of London. I knew from about second year of my undergraduate that I wanted to do a PhD. I knew the subject that I wanted to do, and I was very interested in this link between, and my activities at university also revolved around this link between policy and academic thinking and grassroots community efforts. And that kind of structural model of impact that I was situating a lot of my activities at undergraduate level is still present with me in my current activities. I knew that in order to make that difference, I needed to have that academic credentials, academic thinking behind me. And so I went on to do my master's because I knew that was one of the requirements in order to get onto a PhD programme. So I completed my master's degree at SOAS and I went straight on to a PhD to research the experiences of Muslim men, particularly migrants from the Muslim community from South Asia in the UK. But I kept other interests as well, other research interests, other policy interests. But more importantly, I think I found after postgraduate, the different cushioned experience that I had during undergraduate and being at Oxford. I think Oxford does go out of its way to support undergraduates and students, particularly from BAME backgrounds. I mean, coming from a Muslim family and being the eldest daughter, I was particularly worried about moving away from home and my family was as well and so I requested an ensuite room and my college was very very accommodating with that so I didn't have to share a bathroom with the opposite sex. I really appreciated that it kind of helped ease a lot of concerns with my family as well but more broadly speaking I really found that it was very difficult as a postgraduate student from a BAME community, BAME background, Muslim background, from a working class background and I really felt the inequalities. I mean I knew they were always there but I really felt navigating them after Oxford to be even more difficult and I didn't expect that. I thought in all honesty, I went from people not believing in me, for not understanding why I wanted to go forward, not seeing my potential, to going to Oxford where I was really supported, told that I had a lot of potential, I could go far, and then bam, I went back into people not believing in me, experiencing the structural inequalities, structural racism, Islamophobia, and I feel like my whole degree at Oxford gave me a lot personal development wise on the outside I'm still a Muslim and I'm still having to battle a lot of those everyday inequalities everyday Islamophobia that Muslims and women and people from lower class working class backgrounds are subjected to so this idea that just because you go to Oxford is an equalizer isn't true And that's something that I have learnt to be very frank and blunt about it here. And it's probably the first time that I've actually publicly talked about this is that I don't think just because as a working class, as someone from East Birmingham who went to a state school, yes, I was given the opportunity and seen potential seen in me to go to Oxford, but it was an equaliser. It's kind of being able to get to cloud nine and then as soon as you leave, it's like, bam, you're back on ground zero and below. And I was recently thinking about this idea that it's like being born. I'm sorry to use this phrase, it might be very <laughs> vulgar, but I genuinely feel that it's like when you come from a background like mine and a lot of people are in this situation, it's like being born six foot under. 
and you're constantly having to dig your way to get to ground zero in order to build something. But the way that institutions are structured in the way that organizations are structured, whether you're an employee, whether you're trying to navigate the system, whatever it is you're trying to do, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve, you're constantly being put back in to that six foot under position where you're constantly having to dig your way back up to ground zero in order to build something. And I just feel that going to Oxford or going to these universities, some of the tools that were given to me to be able to dig my way out, but I'm still kind of there. People might be really shocked to hear that right now to say, oh, well, but you went to Oxford. How can you feel that you're still in that position? And I genuinely feel that it's a lifelong struggle to kind of work your way out of those circumstances. It just doesn't happen overnight and it doesn't happen just because you went to Oxford. And I feel even when I talk to people and people's expectations, oh, but you went to Oxford, you should be fine. You should have employment. But actually, that's not the case. I struggled a lot during my postgraduate in terms of funding, in terms of employment. And we'll talk about that. You mentioned you wanted to go into talking about my employment tribunal experience. And even now, I'm in this quite precarious position where I think a lot of academics are in precarious situations. It just comes with the territory. But I think being a BAME Muslim woman in the academy, it's even harder. So just because I have a PhD doesn't mean that I'm going to be automatically granted a position at a university it's a whole new challenge yeah and Zuri, I'd love to talk about where you are right now and, and the structural stuff around that but before we get into that I think it'd be great to talk about a little bit of your experiences in teaching and quite I guess well publicized tribunal case that you went through yeah absolutely to give a little bit of background to mm. listeners the tribunal case basically started when I was a PhD student I mentioned to you about having difficulty with funding myself through the PhD. I wasn't one of the lucky ones to get a scholarship, unfortunately, but I was still so determined to do my PhD. And I thought, well, the first year, what I could do is I could fund myself through employment and continue to apply to scholarships and hopefully secure something for second year and third year. Unfortunately, the employment that I had was very kind of short-lived. And the reason for that is that I raised a concern during my employment about a graphic video of 9-11 that had an 18 rating caution. And it was very, very distressing for children to see. They were 11-year-olds that this video was being shown to. And my concern that I raised was actually this is a safeguarding concern because it had an 18 rating on there. It lasted 12 seconds and 11-year-olds didn't know whether this was a real-life event or it was a film. A lot of them thought, miss, is this a movie? That's the questions that they're asking. Unfortunately, what happened then was that me, in raising the concern, I was considered to be objecting to the curriculum. There were loads of things that came out in the tribunal too long to list here but long story short they considered me to be objecting to the curriculum and they decided to dismiss me and in dismissing me they said that the school is no longer a suitable place for you to work at and let me go it was kind of like a 20 second conversation I wasn't given any prior notice or anything like that and I was told to leave I did appeal to the school to say look I raised a concern quite legitimately and the teacher who showed the video is still in employment and she was white British 
I'll cut a very long story short, it ended up in the tribunal cases. They were found to have been in breach of a number of laws. I fought myself as a litigant in person and won in 2017 on unfair dismissal, whistleblowing, and I won also on victimisation claims. So that was a significant victory. And, and you represented yourself, right, throughout this entire process? Yes, I did. I represented myself. I did try to get legal representation through many avenues, but it was just a string of closed doors. Some solicitors told me there's no prospect of success. You were only employed for a week. And because that's much less than the probation period, you're not going to win anything. So they didn't take the case on. I applied for legal aid agency. I talk about my experience in an academic article called More Than Multiple Jeopardy, which is available on my academia page. And all the evidence and the emails I now refer to are available to view through the article. I was sent a letter from legal aid agency and they said, well, actually, you're quite educated and you can represent yourself. So even though you qualify financially, we're not going to give you legal aid to get legal representation because you went to Oxford, you've got a master's degree and you're studying a PhD. My response to the legal aid agency was, well, regardless of my education qualification, no one should be expected to cross-examine and fight a legal case and cross-examine the very people that subjected me to discrimination. And I have no experience in law, regardless of my education, none of it is in the law. Basically, I don't know what I'm doing. And none of that was accepted and I kind of had to continue to go ahead. So it's kind of like a cherry picking of my identity. The people who wanted to use my education against me to refuse me legal aid did that, whereas the school didn't view my education as meaning anything when I raised a concern and thought, actually, she's an educated person. Maybe she has a valid viewpoint. So I felt quite a big cherry picking of my identity from various organisations and bodies at the time. And how sorry, yeah, did the whole process, the whole court process feel? I mean, how challenging do you think it is for anyone to kind of represent themselves in a situation like that? Honestly, I cannot find the words to explain and to describe how challenging it is to be a litigant in person. My case, even though I won in 2017, is still ongoing. I didn't win the religious discrimination case and I challenged that. I still continue to challenge it. And in the process, after having won my case, the things that I did win on, I've been denied compensation. And so it continues today and it's kind of at the point where it might go to the Court of Appeals and it's taken like a chunk of my life. I was 23 when it started and I'm 28 and I do not see this ending probably for another five years. When something like this takes a large part of your 20s while you see other people living their best life as they say quote-unquote marks and I'm kind of buried in legal work, legal letters to write and deadlines to meet. And at the time, as I mentioned, I was a PhD student. So I've fought this case throughout my entire PhD. That was a struggle. My university wasn't very sympathetic. I lost the very foundation of my funding for my PhD and I struggled throughout. I worked part-time jobs in the evenings. I was doing medical secretary work at the dental hospital in Birmingham. I was doing project officer work at NHS England. I was doing a lot of part-time work to get me through financing myself through my PhD. 
because of this original job loss and the impact that it had on me in my life. When it comes to putting words into how difficult this experience was, it's incredibly difficult to navigate other parts of life. They have this term called mitigating losses. And it's like being beaten from every side because if you're mitigating your losses by completing your studies and you miss a deadline or you don't get something in, the prejudice that is shown to you is incredible. And I actually had judges deal with me very, very harshly. One judge said, in black and white writing, in a judgment, you knew what you were doing because you went to world-class universities. And I had to say to the judge, well, actually, that's really harsh of you to say because I might have gone to world-class universities, but none of that was pertaining to the study of law. And it was for completely different subjects. And it's kind of like, well, if you're successful and go to world-class universities, that's used against you. And if you're not successful and didn't go to world-class university or didn't go to university at all, then people like Boris Johnson and David Cameron still say, oh, well, Muslim women aren't educated. So it's like, well, which way, what are you meant to do? And it's being stuck in between a rock and a hard place because some of the successes that I have had are deemed to be cross-cutting and portray me as someone who should know all the dots and all the T's about law and that's not the case and when you're dealing with judges and I've really through this whole experience I have experienced Islamophobia and racism and that interaction of Islamophobia and racism in the courts and through the legal system I feel is a whole different type of racism yeah and I was thinking about it just the other day because at the stage where my case could proceed to the Court of Appeals and I have to prepare for that. And I was just having a think, I thought to myself, there's three types of racism. And I thought, well, if I can say here, in my opinion, I'm not saying this is for everyone, but in my opinion, I feel that there's the in-your-face racism where you're called the P-word or the N-word or you're spat at. There's that racism. Then there's the institutional structural racism where you're not given that promotion or the workplace isn't accommodating for your religious beliefs or discriminates against you on your gender or other kind of protected characteristics. And then there's the discrimination, there's the racism that is cloaked under the illusion of democracy and justice. And that is the experience that I've had through the courts. And I think it's kind of a self-justifying racism through the courts. It's a self-justifying because it's saying, well, actually, we're doing the work to give you justice, but actually it counters that. It doesn't stand for that. I don't think as a BAME working class British Muslim woman, I would have gone through nearly half the experiences if I was white. I mean, just to give you an example, the judges actually said that if I was a Christian or a Jewish woman, I would have experienced the same Thing. I would have experienced dismissal if I raised a concern about 9-11 video being shown. And I said to the judge, I said, no, that's not right, because you have had to have a contextual experience. So the Jewish or the Christian woman would have had to be complaining about a 9-11 equivalent where the perpetrators were considered to be from the Jewish or the Christian community. There would have had to be a Trojan horse affair equivalent where the city that the complaint was taking place in, there would have been a plot to take over schools by people from those communities. And the Jewish or the Christian person would have had to be wearing a visible identity marker. I was wearing the hijab. So without those three contexts, you cannot say that a Jewish or Christian woman would have experienced the same treatment that I experienced. But when it's put through the court system, it's considered to be 
justified. Forgive me, I don't want to be offending anyone, but in my experience, and I talk from my experience only and going through this, I feel that's kind of the worst kind of racism because it's a racism you cannot fight. It's a racism that you cannot put up a fight against. If someone spat at you, if someone called you the N-word, you can gain witnesses. But when it's the judges, the upholders of the law who are practicing this racism towards you, who are you meant to call on? Yeah. From my experience of the law as well, I think you're dealing with an institution where there isn't really ultimately that many checks and balances when it comes to the judiciary. And I think that's normally a good thing. But when it comes to subconscious bias and those kind of like institutional bias that you can get, then that can be definitely problematic. And you're certainly someone I think that has gone through and experienced the kind of the hardest end of that spectrum. So yeah, I'm just conscious of the time as well. And I really wanted to talk about what you're up to now as well, because you went on from this experience and you've subsequently done or been involved in the equality review within various different, I think, cross-party parliamentary groupings and also you've then subsequently become an academic and I'd love to hear about your focus of research these days and where you're going to be heading in the next five years. Because of this whole experience with the courts I came to become well versed in the Equality Act and I realised that basically it wasn't fit for purpose. What I did was I set up the Equality Act review in 2018. I felt like The Equality Act just wasn't protecting the minorities, the people that it was meant to protect in the way that it can protect them. So set up this review to kind of understand and put forward policy recommendations as to how the Equality Act 2010 can be strengthened. And through the organisation, I mean, it's grown so much now in the last two years. We have uh, cross-party support. We recently had David Lamy endorsing us and kind of lending his support, endorsement for the campaign and for the organisation. So there's been some incredible achievements that we've been able to make in the last two years. But the hard work continues and we will be putting together a parliamentary report in the next couple of months, which will be talking about and kind of put forward ideas as to how to strengthen the Act. You might be aware that homelessness is not protected under the Act. And it's actually using my own experience and not only keeping it to, let's say, how can we protect Muslims only, but actually saying, well, in my experience as a Muslim, I wasn't protected, but who else is missing from the Act? So it's looking at low socioeconomic background, trying to get that protected in the Act, trying to get the homeless community protected through the Act, and the characteristics that are protected, such as gender, race, religion, how can we strengthen those in law? So we've been running a public consultation, and inshallah, I hope that a report will be available soon. What we hope is to pass a bill, to get as many MPs to support us, to pass a bill, to look at reviewing the Act. The aim is to get that in the next 12 to 18 months, where we can have a real public debate about what's missing, how to continue strengthening the Act. Good luck with that. And I really look forward to kind of seeing the results of that. How optimistic are you of getting far with this review? Or do you think this might be one kind of the long term and waiting for maybe a few parliaments down the line or something? I'm quite optimistic. It might be that we wait for a few parliaments down the line. But that's not to say that we shouldn't work towards it. And there's no other organisation that is currently calling for the review of the Act. I mean, the EHRC is under a lot of criticism lately for various reasons. 
we mentioned checks and balances before, but when we have an act that, yes, it's new, it's 10 years old, but it, society moves like a long way in 10 years, the difficulties and the everyday, the real lived experiences of some of the most marginalised communities, how can we expect trust in policy and law when the very acts don't support people in these experiences and very outdated and don't reflect the ongoings of the contemporary society. As I mentioned in my own case, the religious discrimination case doesn't call for contextualization, doesn't ask for judges or make it a requirement for judges to look at the context within which the case is worn forward. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. law there. And if it did, perhaps there would have been a very different outcome in my case. So I've studied that and I've thought, actually, that context of there being a 9-11 equivalent, the Trojan horse affair equivalent, if the judges were required to consider context within a comparator when deliberating on a religious discrimination case, I think that's important. I think you cannot view a discrimination case without context. And so it's so urgent that we have this review, so, so urgent, but it cannot be driven through Westminster or Whitehall. What it needs to be driven through is a grassroots effort where experiences of people that drive the change so it's my experiences I've collected other people's experiences such as a bereaved widow whose husband was disabled and she was denied bereaved widow's allowance because her husband wasn't paying national insurance contributions but DWP knew that he was long-term disabled for 25 years under the mental health act now the mental health disability protected characteristic was not supporting this bereaved widow in this instance. And so there's another gap in the law there under the disability characteristic. This is what I mean. When you collect these real lived experiences, that's when you can make that change. And that's why I'm hopeful that we can do it. Inshallah. And Surya, finally, I wanted to ask, what are you up to these days with your research? But also, where do you see Surya being in about five years time? I'm kind of an academic now. But I consider myself to be an academic activist. I'm very keen on pushing forward the voices of the marginalised and centering the voices of the marginalised. I've done research on Muslim women's experiences of work and career development that was published and launched in Parliament earlier this year. It was quite successful. We're still briefing MPs on it regularly, including a DWP and universities minister, etc., a research report on predicting futures, looking at the coronavirus impact on student experiences of exam cancellation, especially the idea that BAME pupils are going to be more disadvantaged through this prediction system that was publicised on a national scale. And we're still making the difference with that by briefing MPs. All of my research centres the voices of the marginalised. It brings out experiences and voices that the public discourse omits or fails to recognise. And that's something that I'll always continue to champion and channel through all of my work. I don't believe in the academic lifestyle where you publish books and peer reviews and they sit on a shelf and a very limited number of people will read them. What I believe in is that all of my research must translate into policy and it must translate into improving the lives of those at the grassroots level and those who need it the most. And that's what I'm dedicated to. So that's what I will be doing. And that's a lifelong pursuit that I'll always be involved in. Going forward, I mean, in five years, to continue to be involved in policy, hopefully at a greater level, and continue to research, continue to put these voices together, to forward. I'm currently researching Muslim men's experiences of work and career development. 
I think Muslim men are really ignored in the public eye and there's a lot of stereotypes and a lot of support is needed for Muslim men to champion them through that's not currently available. Yeah. That research will enable more support for them. Hopefully that'll be out next year. I'm working towards that. I'm working on a number of books that should be out next year and the year after by 2021, 2022. I've been doing public lectures on racialization of Islam. This year I've got one coming up later this month. And so I aim to continue to decolonize the academy, decolonize thought, and continue to put out ideas in the public domain. I think when you talk about racialization of Islam and when it's stuck in a book and very few people have access to it, but when you make it free and you talk to people and engage to people about it, that's how ideas are passed on and become the norm and become permanent and embedded into public discourse. And I think that's the effort that we need at the moment in order to make Islamophobia and the everyday experience that Muslims have in this country, the more we talk about it, the more likely we engage more people in a university setting or a setting where there's information being given out and it's well-researched information, the more likely we are to convince people and to make the cause one that people leave in. I think that's when the tide turns. So that's Definitely. the work I'll be continuing to do. Well, I wish you absolutely the best because your success is, I guess, our success as a community. And Jazakallah khair once again for making the time to come on here. I hope it's inspired a few people to go down different avenues that I think are really, really important for us as a community to go down. Perhaps historically on this podcast, we focus more on the entrepreneurship side, but I think policy and research is equally important. So, yeah, many thanks once again. Yeah, thank you so much, Jazakallah, for having me on. And likewise, I wish you and IFG all the success. And likewise, it's our success. And I look forward to working closely. Jazakallah khair. Salaamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Assalamu Alaikum.